evening, glory, and evening, grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It is the last radio hour of the week, and that means it is time for the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Sometimes he has one of his colleagues, not this week, because like last week, we are focused on the presidency of Abraham Lincoln, in which Dr. Arn is deeply versed. If you missed our post-Thanksgiving special on Lincoln, three hours on President Lincoln's political philosophy, it's now up at hugh4hillsdale.com, and all of the Hillsdale dialogues are at Hugh for Hillsdale. There's also a button at hughhewitt.com, and of course, everything that Hillsdale do, does is at hillsdale.edu. Dr. Arn, I hope uh, I hope your weekend after Thanksgiving was a good one. Remarkable reaction really yeah, to, the, uh, yeah, to the Lincoln yeah. thing. That was a good show. Yeah, wasn't it, though? It was, but we didn't talk about his war leadership, so I asked for an encore. Okay. Uh, and the reason I did is what we did, we got up to 1861 in his inaugural address. And we did cover the Gettysburg Address in the second inaugural, but it, we didn't really talk about how he ran the presidency. And yeah. let's just let's start there. When you consider his years in the White House, how would you sum them up? Well, first of all, the words, you, you have a good instinct there, because the words that Lincoln spoke, he spoke in the middle of the greatest tragedy in American history. And the cost was terrible. And Lincoln was this lawyer who'd been a prosperous lawyer and who'd run some newspapers, kind of run them, he's part owner. And that was his administrative experience. And he comes to Washington and he's inaugurated in early March, 1861. And seven states have seceded and four more are about to. And so there were 11 Confederate states uh, with a population of, of 5 million free people and 4 million slaves. And then there were 20 states left in the north with a population of 20 million. But the capital was almost surrounded. And if Maryland had gone, it would have been surrounded. And Maryland almost did. And uh, it didn't in part because Lincoln intervened. He said of his interventions, he arrested some people and held them. And he said of uh, that, he said, uh, I would have elect, uh, arrested the American, Maryland legislature itself if I would have thought that would have been effective. Hmm. So right away, Lincoln is very decisive. Lincoln calls for an army, uh, and uh, eventually a very large army would, for, would, would uh, form you know, over a million people. But he first called for 47,000 and then upped it to 75,000. And he didn't really have any way to know whether anybody would come. And the two great generals who were around, who had experience and reputation, one of them was the very aged Winfield Scott, and uh, he was the general of the army for a while, and the other was Robert E. Lee, uh, a descendant of, uh, of what, the Lees of the American Revolution, and a collateral of George Washington, who, lived, who grew up in a house where George Washington all, often went. Uh, it overlooks Arlington Cemetery now. The Custis and, Lee uh, Mansion, right? Beautiful that's place. That's right. And, uh, and uh, Lee turned it down with a famous letter in which he says, he does not believe the Constitution admits of secession, and he does not believe that this case <laughs> admits a justifies revolution, but I cannot raise my hand against my home and my family. Uh, so Lee, uh, Lincoln is inaugurated, and we talked about his first inaugural address, and then the effect of that is 
uh, in his call-ups of troops and the firing in, of, on Fort Sumter in April of 1861 that four more states left. And it's worth saying that in those states in particular, there was a lot of division. Uh, part of the reason we have West Virginia today is that West Virginia, probably by majority, was against secession. And much of Virginia itself was, but the Confederacy moved its capital to Richmond, which had some influence over that. And in the place where I'm from, at the bottom, at the at the eastern edge of the Ozarks, up in the Ozarks, not many people wanted to secede. And there were other mountainous places in Tennessee, too, scattered around the south, where it was a very divisive thing. And it's worth noting that secession from the Confederacy was suppressed by force in Tennessee. Um, it's it's so, also worth noting, Dr. Arn, I think that this struggle that we're about to talk about goes by many names. I call it the Civil War, but I once went to, to Charleston and picked up a newspaper on the occasion of the raising of the Hunley, the Confederate submarine, that referred to it, uh, not in quotations, but as the last remnant of the glorious cause. And it's yeah. called the war between the states, and it's called by us the Civil War, the war for the Union. It's got so many different names. Is there anything else like that? No, it's it was, it's it, you know of course the echoes of it are everywhere today, uh, you know in race relations too. Yes, but uh, it was bitter and terrible, and we lost like at the Battle of Shiloh in 1862. Um, uh, we, we lost more. The, the Union lost more soldiers. They lost more than the Confederacy on that day, and they lost more soldiers than the United States had lost in all of its previous wars, in on that one day. It's odd that you would bring that up. My uh, The fetching Mrs. Hewitt's great-great-grandfather was the man who almost lost Shiloh by not delivering Grant's order in a timely fashion. He went on to become General Neffler, uh, the only Jewish general on the Union side of the, of, the, um, of the Civil War, but he almost lost Shiloh. And that was such a bloody war. Antietam was like that as well, wasn't it? That's right. So Antietam is the worst day for casualties in American history. Gettysburg is the worst battle in American history in, in, from the point of view of killed and wounded. And the Civil War is much the worst war after two world wars in Korea and Vietnam for casualties north and south. That is remarkable. Yeah, you know, Dr. Vietnam. we just celebrated the sesquicentennial of Lincoln's re-election. How in the world, given Americans' antipathy to body counts today, did he ever win re-election with well, such a, a staggering? Uh, there are two reasons, um, I think. Uh, one of them is uh, Lincoln himself and his powers, and the other was the war turned in 1864, because in the, in the, in the race against him was a fired general, of whom there were very many, George McClellan. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, it, to him, he was a very competent general, and the, and the troops loved him probably better than anybody they, they fought for. And uh, Lincoln once wrote him a note and said, if you're not using the army this week, can I use it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's the thing about Lincoln. You want to talk about how he ran the war. Without much experience, although he'd been a soldier a little bit in an Indian war, a Native American war, whatever you want to call it, he... Um, he uh, uh, he commanded this war. And the generals worked for him. And it's worth making a point about that, because generalship is a kind of expertise. And, you know, we live in an age in which science is supposed to tell us what to do. And those who know science rule in so many things. 
And that's just a form of the same problem that arises with generals. And you see in Lincoln's correspondence, which is very worth reading uh, with the generals, that he understands he doesn't know as much about generaling as they do. What he knows is politics. And that means not just how to get reelected, that means uh, the needs of the nation. Uh, Churchill writes famously, uh, the distinction between politics and strategy diminishes as the point of view is raised. At the summit, true politics and strategy are one. Hmm. And, hmm. Uh, and that means that if it really were true that every question was a technical question, war and peace, then those who have credentials to know the answer would be the ones who rule. But Lincoln was trying to judge the purposes of the Union and save them and the needs of the nation in the war. And so he had a lot of generals who, who wouldn't fight very much, and he had a lot of generals who got beat. And he thought, time's a-wasting. This is costing a lot. We need to not just engage with the enemy. We need to beat him. So when it and, came time to cast a vote for re-election, he had won the confidence of the people that he knew how to general the generals? Well, after Antietam, uh, you know, I, I think I might quoted it last week because it's one of my favorite lines. The great historian Bruce Catton wrote after Antietam, he said, and so the war, the war expanded, but also it came down to just two men, Lincoln and Lee, who had the awful ability to make men love them and the ruthlessness to tell them what to do. And that quality in Lincoln had a lot to do with his ability to master the cabinet and keep the war going and pick the right generals, which finally he did, in my opinion. But then the other thing that saved him was William Tecumseh Sherman, because everybody learned during the war, and maybe Sherman learned as much as anybody. Because much of the war, people forget this, because the, the, the battles in Virginia where the Confederacy was capitaled and close to the capital of the nation in Washington, D.C., those were the most bloody, and, the, and they were the largest battles. And that ground was very difficult. Uh, uh, you, you, you go across the Potomac if you're trying to invade south, and you go through a tough area called the Wilderness, and then you get into a series of parallel battle uh, valleys with openings. Stand by on that geography. When we come back with Dr. Larry Arn, it's the Hillsdale Dialogue, the wartime leadership of Abraham Lincoln on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, as we do our weekly Hillsdale Dialogue. And we are talking about the wartime leadership of Abraham Lincoln this week, building off of last week's three hours a special post-Thanksgiving conversation uh, available over at HughForHillsdale.com on, on Lincoln's political theory. Uh, and before we go back to the geography of Virginia, Larry, I, I have to tell you, uh, w, uh, George W. Bush was my guest last week, and I, and I remember meeting with him in the Oval Office with some other talk show hosts once. There was a very famous portrait of Lincoln there, and you probably had the same conversation. And he said, as I'm sure he said to many hundreds of other visitors, 41 is first in my heart, but 16 is first in my head because I am a wartime president. Yeah, what do you think he meant by okay. that? Well... Uh, you should uh, get that really great book edited by a man named Richard Mellon and, and page through it. It's full of beautiful, it's a large coffee table kind of book, and it's full of beautiful photographs, extremely well produced, reproduced of Lincoln. And just page through and watch him age. Uh, he was an old man when the war was done, and he was shot. And that's because, you know, he said once, I'm driven to my knees, I have nowhere else to go. 
and uh, it was, you know, he was fighting. He was first of all, he was killing Americans and suffering the deaths of those in his army. And you couldn't be sure because in the first two years they lost. So the way the war went, if people look at a map, they'll see what 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 I'm about to say is important. Virginia was crucial ground because the two capitals were there, and it was very difficult ground, and the and the Union forces got beat there over and over and over again until 1864. But the war really turned in the West, and in 1861 they took uh, New Orleans and they started up the Mississippi, and then. In 1863, they had two big big victories from July 1 to July 4th, one at Gettysburg, a three-day battle, and one at Vicksburg, where Ulysses Grant, who fought many bloody battles in the war to a tie, never lost one and won many. And he took Vicksburg by siege, and then the Mississippi was in Union hands. And once that happened... They could maneuver much better, yep. and the and the Confederacy was severed in two, and so that changed everything. And then that set the way. And Grant, in my opinion, was a very great general. Uh, and uh, there's a great painting, by the way. And Bruce Canton writes about that painting. It's a painting we have it up in the college of reproduction of it uh, on the presidential yacht in the Potomac. Uh, it shows Lincoln and Grant and Sherman and Phil Sheridan, the cavalry commander, sitting. And Catton writes of that scene, when those four men sit down together, now we knew who was going to win the war. Uh, You know, that's so fascinating. And you were talking last segment about the geography. They were all such masters of geography. Even Lincoln, who I guess being a farm man, would have been used to thinking in terms of what was easy to climb and what was not. But today's war is so much more mobile but as you said last segment, they had to traverse this horrible ground. And I, I don't recall that where I read this, but the wilderness that you had mentioned at the end of it was such an awful place to fight. Maybe the worst place any battle yeah. was fought during the war. And made much worse by the fact that Robert E. Lee was waiting behind it. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so it, was not, it was very hard to go through, and you didn't really want to get there anyway. Yeah. And, and here's a general point about the war. Uh, this is something that Churchill writes a lot about about later wars, too. This is the first really modern war in this sense. And General Longstreet, number two in the Confederate Army for most of the war, and a brilliant man, uh, he understood this. Firepower had changed. Now they had rifles, and they weren't repeating yet, but they could load them faster. And, And so all of a sudden, withering fire was just overwhelming. And And in general, the battles went that the one behind the wall and on the higher ground won the battle. And that gave an advantage to the Confederacy because they, they, uh, they, the, the North had to go down there and take the land back. Now, Lee was very good at that kind of warfare, but also a tremendous maneuver general. And the really great battle, I think, in my opinion, his greatest battle was Chancellorsville, where in 1862, Joe Hooker, of whom Lincoln said he has his headquarters where his hindquarters ought to be. He'd written to him my headquarters, from my headquarters in the saddle. He was a very good general, but he wrote of this battle that he lost confidence in himself because he got his army through the wilderness, and, he, and with a very large majority, he was excellently positioned against Lee uh, and was simply going to overwhelm him if he had attacked. 
and he waited. And Lee did the crazy thing of dividing his army in two and leaving a smaller force, and he was already smaller, in front of the Union Army, and he sent Stonewall Jackson around to the left looking for a flank. And they found it and destroyed the Union Army. And and there goes Joe, uh, Joe Hooker. And what replaced him eventually was Meade and then Grant. And Grant was, first of all, when he when he got his nose bloodied, he just kept coming. That's what happened at Shiloh. That's what happened at Cold Harbor in 1864, which those battles in 1864 around Richmond and south of it were previews of, of the trench warfare of World War II. And then one has to think about Sherman, because Sherman, in my opinion, and in the opinion of one of my teachers and friends, Victor Hansen, um, Sherman figured out something about modern war. And he, on the way down to Atlanta, coming down from Memphis, when they, which they had taken, he's up against Johnson first and then General Hood. And he assaults General uh, Johnson at the time and loses a lot of men and resolved not to do that anymore. And instead, he started maneuvering to get position. It's interesting. This is the sesquicentennial of those maneuvers right now. Oh, yeah, that's right. Right, right now. Right now. And, 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 and uh, he took Atlanta, and he emptied the city. He made every man, woman, and child leave. And if you want to see what educated men who are fighting each other to the death are like, uh, you should read the correspondence between Sherman and General Hood about that fact. It's extremely interesting. I've never heard of that course. Oh yeah. Hood writes that it's indecent what you're doing. And 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 Sherman replies to him, it's indecent what they're doing because this is a country of which we're all part and they're taking part of it away and they will feel the cost of the war. And and uh and uh, all they have to do is stop and we can have our country again and they can have their rights. And it's very, and there are three letters between them, each each side. And those are fast. I have to look those up after this program. You know, where next week is the sesquicentennial, the Battle of Nashville. But I was unaware that Hood and and Sherman corresponded. It was an interesting. I, I, I clerked for a judge who had ten thousand books on the Civil War. It captures people. He said it was the last war fought between men of extraordinary education and literacy. I don't know if that's true, but I think he meant pervasively so. Well, Victor Hansen makes the case that George Patton was such a man, and uh, and and Sherman and Grant were very interesting guys. Faces of uh, family. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn. We're talking about Lincoln as a wartime leader. On top them all, on the Union side, Abraham Lincoln, brooding and inspirational at the same time. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America, it's the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. And he is, of course, quite learned in the Civil War. Last week, we spoke about the political theory of Abraham Lincoln. This week we're talking about his generalship. In other words, how did he how did he conduct this war? And to that I return all of these dialogues, by the way, available at HughForHillsdale.com, and the Hillsdale uh, offerings of all sort are available at Hillsdale.edu, including Imprimus. And Hillsdale was itself a participant in the war. I, I meant to say that last week, Larry Arn. I believe your campus emptied of almost every able-bodied young man at the time the war came. Somewhere between four and five hundred, which in percentage is bigger than anybody except the military academies, and in absolute terms, only Yale can we find that had more. And uh, you know, several Congressional Medal of Honor winners, uh, one multiple Medal of Honor winner, 
and uh, and uh, you know several dozen of them in the peach orchard at at Gettysburg, and they had a lot to do with it. They were in the Iron Brigade, uh, which lost two thirds of its numbers uh, on the second day at Gettysburg. So, and, uh, so, so you mentioned ahead. that Lincoln aged. How, I actually don't know how anyone would endure the casualty counts of a war like this. Well, it was, uh, you know, the, 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 the funny answer is, uh, just like in, this, in the First World War, it was hell and terrible, but also they did. Uh, Churchill, uh, Churchill writes of the First World War, he says, Nothing daunts the valiant heart of man. He seemed in modern times to have resources that were as great or greater than at any time. And it's amazing what they did, both sides. And, uh, and you know, they, they, they didn't always hate each other either. In fact, often did not. And, and Lincoln did not shield himself from this. I, I, what I do know about the war mostly comes from reading the popular histories, not scholarship. But I know that he would go out among the men and, and visit battlefields and see the carnage. Yeah, and, you know, pay particular attention to executions for desertion, looking for ways of mercy, and um, draft dodgers were shot. He stopped a lot of that. Looked into looked into the individual cases. Why do you and, bring that up? What what point are you making there? Well, just that Churchill. Oh, sorry, Churchill. Lincoln cared about life, and uh, the, it wore, the, this all wore on him in part because of the cost of it. And uh, and you know he had made his arguments. We went through some of them last time about why he didn't think it was right to just let them go. Uh, he thought they were taking things with them that they didn't own alone, and that they were changing a great experiment in liberty into an experiment in slavery. And there's also a, a recent book by Rich Lowry, a friend of yours and mine, in which he wanted people to understand he wasn't just a wartime general. He also did the railroad at this time and free trade and the Homestead Act, which is, as you've often pointed out, elegantly short and overwhelmingly comprehensive. They gave away 10% of the land area of the United States to about between two and a half and three million people. And the thing is 1,400 words long. Isn't that amazing? And I say they gave it away. People had to pay 10 bucks. And uh, they, had to, they had to be citizens or registered to become citizens. They had to be a head of a household, man or woman, or 21 years old. And uh, and they had to live on it and work it for five years. Don't you and, think that's what we ought to do with Detroit? Honest to goodness, I proposed it before that if you just if you just said if you are able-bodied with tools and you will build on the land, we'll give it to you. Yeah, that's a, I, I I do think and see the the direction of the country is different about that. The federal government is right now busy taking over a whole bunch more land, and if you look at a map of the United States, it starts and you see it colored in darker colors for private land and lighter colors for uh, publicly owned land. It's all dark in the east. And of course, we, it's, a geogra it's not just a geographic chart, it's also a time chart. Because the parts that came into the Union later are increasingly owned by the government. And what's, what's neat about the Homestead Act, just like the Northwest Ordinance is, it's driven by the conception that it's good for people to own property and work it and make their living on it. And so their idea about the land was give it away. 
and then let people work it, and it'll be. And Lincoln great superintended that. I don't know when he signed it, but he superintended it amid battles and war reports. That's what's amazing. 1864. Yeah, he did, and it's it's is I believe it's one of the few greatest pieces of legislation in the history of the world, and uh, and it speaks so clearly about it. it's just like reading, by the way, the fundamental acts about education in early America. And what none of them, they all state higher purposes for education and greater necessity for it than we state today, but none of them involve central control of it. Very well said. I'll be right back. Dr. Larry Arn, the Hillsdale Dialogue. Lincoln is wartime leader when we return on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America, it's the Hillsdale Dialogue this week, focusing on the general, the wartime leadership of Abraham Lincoln. And Dr. Larry Arn, we're, we're recording this and airing it the first time in 2014. At the conclusion of weeks of racial bitterness and animosity of the sort we haven't really seen in many, many years, since 1992, really, in the Los Angeles riots, it, it's been awful. And Lincoln, of course, issued the Emancipation Proclamation. He was friends with Frederick Douglass. He, he worked very hard not only to win the war, but to allow for the country to reform after it, uh, a project undone in the, in the course by his assassination. Did he, he, always, he, he improvised a lot of that, did he not? Oh, yeah. See, Lincoln's constitutional position had been that the federal government does not have power to interfere with the domestic institutions, including slavery of the states. And so in, in the fall of 18, late fall of 1862, he conceived an idea that he implemented on 1st of January 1863, and that was as a war measure, he said, in, for the states in rebellion, and that means not in Kentucky, for example, that was not in rebellion, uh, that the that the slaves were uh, proclaimed emancipated, and that was a military necessity, he said, and he had the power to do it for that reason. And that's why he didn't do it in the border states. And it's interesting, that isn't one of Lincoln's ringing and beautiful documents, of, whom, of which there are so many. It, it is couched in terms that make it read like a military order. Huh. And and uh, it had a big effect uh, because it it meant it, it, first of all there are five million free people and four million slaves in the South and they're all listening and in addition it affected Europe because now it's clear uh, you know in in 1861 there was a tough time when Britain threatened war against us for arresting on the high seas some Southerners that are on their way to treat with Britain. And Lincoln let them go and let them go to London with the words, one war at a time. But that means that the British were tending in a Southern direction which, with, with which they had much greater economic interest. But when it became a war uh, more explicitly about slavery, it was hard for them. Uh, and, uh, that, you know, they, so, uh, William, uh, William Wilberforce had done his stuff by then. A prudential act by a statesman in the middle of this. In, in, our, in our six minutes left, I'm, I'm just curious as to if he ever, in your reading, buckled. Did he? I, I know when his son died, it was horrifically sad, but did he ever think, I should treat with the South? No. He was under very heavy pressure from the Congress at the time. That's what that film, Lincoln, is about. Uh, by Steven Spielberg, I think, directed it even. Um, and it's good. And, um, and what, what, what's going on 
is that there's a lot of pressure in the Congress to sit down and talk with the South at this stage and uh, late in the war. And Lincoln works, and he, Lincoln wants the Congress to pass the third, what became the 13th Amendment. He wants them to do it right now and, uh, and you know, put it out to the states, the ones not in rebellion, to ratify. And he wants to get done with that thing, right, and change the Constitution so it's illegal. And, uh, and so they put into that thing, the ones who wanted the war to stop, that he had to agree to treat with these Southerners. And uh, Lincoln delayed them all the way up the river. <laughs> and, uh, and then he got his vote, and then he didn't talk to them. <laughs> and, uh, Did he ever talk to was, Lee? Uh, that was a very artful thing. Yeah, well, he was artful on every front. Did he ever sit down with Robert E. Lee? No. No, he didn't, because he was killed. And uh, and Lincoln was for very Lincoln wanted he, he he was ready to let anybody back in the Union who would swear an oath of allegiance. He he issued during the war a general pardon to everyone who would do that. And he and he wanted any ten percent that did that and recognized the thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth amendments. If they would do those two things, then they could elect people to Congress and elect a governor and a state legislature, and they could start being states again, just like all the other states. And that was his basic idea about Reconstruction. There wasn't much else to it, although later when he saw, we talked about his appeal to some black leaders that they should immigrate to another country with an E, um, and they said no, they didn't want to. Then he said to Nathaniel Banks, who conquered much of Louisiana and was its governor, they should propose some way to to work their way out of their relationship of master and slave and into their new relationship. So he could understand that there was going to have to be a civil rights movement. Huh. And uh, leaving those out of account, Lincoln, he says in the, in the second inaugural address that we talked about last time, he says, you know, to bind up our wounds, and there are common wounds, and he wants the nation to be whole and rededicated to its principles of equal rights for all. Now, it, it, and, and that's what sustained him, I think. It's hard to, to project. He's murdered on April 14, 1865, only a week after the war ends, or the, uh, the surrender at Appomattox is not actually over. Uh, so Reconstruction, if ever he would have imagined it, did not happen. But how would it have been different, uh, Larry Arn, had he not been assassinated, well, in your view? Uh, there are two differences. Uh, one was Lincoln was politically very strong by now. He had won the 1864 election by a lot for those two reasons I said, one of them the taking of Atlanta by William Sherman. But the other was he was for uh, a proper dedication to the principles of the Union, as they're stated in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and then he's for being a nation again. And so, you know, there was Reconstruction was, has been difficult. I mean, in some ways, if you forget about the South, because it's not just a Southern problem anymore, in a way, Reconstruction goes on today when you talk about that racial bitterness that's in the country right now. Uh, and I, I think it's on a ground that's been introduced mainly since the Civil War, but it's still there. And Lincoln, you know, was eloquent in talking about getting past that and learning to live under the principles of our nation. So I think he would have been a better force than anybody who replaced him, who, you remember, Andrew Johnson had never been elected president and, and never was. 
when we come back have the clout that lincoln had when we come back next week i want to spend an hour on reconstruction and what went wrong and and the race issue and how it went oh so wrong and how lincoln might not have gotten it so so very wrong dr larry arn of hillsdale college always a great pleasure all of the hillsdale dialogues are available at hughforhillsdale.com or go to hillsdale.edu